0: On October 6th, Gaza was desperate. Gaza was ignored. Gaza was isolated. People demanding some kind of dignity. So the volcano was going to explode one way or another. And you have hundreds and hundreds of Palestinian hostages in Israeli prisons. Female prisoners, including children. You know, teenage boys. People in administrative detention hundreds of them who hadn't been charged. This was a major issue in the Gaza Strip. So October 7th was inevitable.
1: That's Max Blumenthal, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Max Blumenthal. October 7th was inevitable. Gidon Levy, the noted Israeli journalist, says, quote, Gaza is a cage the biggest prison in the world, unquote. 2.3 million Palestinians are locked in a small area. For years, they have been under siege by Israel, and now, relentless bombing, resulting in tens of thousands of deaths and massive destruction. If you're trapped in a cage, you'll try to break out. Millions of Palestinians in Gaza, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem have been under the boot of Israel, enduring decades of occupation, killings, oppression, imprisonment of thousands, evictions, land seizures, roadblocks, checkpoints, walls, and fences. That explains what happened on October 7th. It doesn't excuse it. As the great poet W.H. Auden wrote, I and the public know what all schoolchildren learn. Those to whom evil is done, do evil in return. Our guest today is Max Blumenthal. He's an award-winning journalist and editor-in-chief of The Gray Zone. He spoke at the Community Church of Boston in mid-December.
0: This means a lot to me to, to be here. I wanted to be here in person because it reminds me that the last talk I did on Gaza was at the synagogue on Passover of Rabbi Brant Rosen in Evanston, Illinois, outside Chicago, which is an anti-Zionist synagogue that was filled with Jews like me who see Zionism as transforming our religion, which is why we feel so passionately, one reason why we feel so passionately about this issue and why you see more and more rising to the occasion coming to the fore, occupying the US capital, occupying streets around America to protest this genocide. And you know, when I think back about all of the things I witnessed in Gaza in 2014, being in the rubble with families who saw their home that they had worked for for their entire lives with multiple levels for each generation destroyed, reduced to rubble, targeted with missiles, or speaking to people who had their entire families killed and nearly wiped from the civil registry of Gaza, speaking to families who witnessed their loved ones be killed, like the family of Salam Shamali, who was killed by a sniper. Being in that environment, actually being under the bombing myself and feeling what that's like to have naval shells explode nearby, to have a drone over your head at night, to hear the missile strikes, to actually experience the terror that people experience day in and day out and have the option of leaving when they don't. That made me so upset when I see all of these morally fraudulent media personalities try to ambush those of us who stand in solidarity with Palestine and try to demand that we condemn October 7th or we condemn Hamas when none of them condemned a single thing that happened before October 7th, if anything, they supported it. Massacre after massacre. Over 70 years of an unbearable cavalry experienced by Palestinians, and they have never been asked to condemn it. They've never asked a U.S. official or a Western official or anyone who presided over this catastrophe to condemn it, and we have to condemn something now. It's as if history didn't exist before October 7th. They hate context. They call it whataboutism, that's like code for context. So let's talk about some history first. Let's try to understand why this is happening. Because between the time that I was first in Gaza and now there were at least two major military escalations which left hundreds of civilians dead as well as the great march of return when civilians in Gaza did what Thomas Friedman asked them to do, he said if they would just have a peace march and march towards Israel, young Israelis of believe in peace would join them and they would all march together to Jerusalem and it would change the Jewish-Israeli society's attitudes. Well, they went and did that. And what did Israel do? They sent their young people in uniform to the frontiers of Gaza. They killed, they maimed, and they showed what they thought of Gaza attempting unarmed resistance. And they left them with one other option. Before Protective Edge, before 2014, there were three major assaults on the Gaza Strip starting in 2006. It's actually four. The biggest one was Operation Cast Lead, 2008, 2009. Israel waited till Barack Obama was elected, knowing he would do nothing, say nothing, and they broke a ceasefire by massacring over 50 police cadets who had just graduated to be police officers in the Gaza Strip, an act of mass cop killing by the Israeli military, and they proceeded to massacre hundreds more civilians. This was a signal event for me that really spurred my commitment to this issue. Then 2011, 2012, Operation Pillar of Clouds, more massacres by airstrikes. As Gaza's armed factions began to demonstrate their ability to develop some capacity to resist, some capacity to hit back. These confrontations were all the product of the siege of Gaza, which was itself the result of Israel's so-called disengagement when it pulled 9,000 fanatical settlers out of the Gaza Strip in 2005 with the intention of sealing Gaza off in order to give its military more latitude to operate against Hamas. What triggered this disengagement? It was the armed actions of Hamas during the Second Intifada, which made the Israeli position in Gaza untenable. It was not any, negotiated, any negotiation through the peace process that led to Gaza gaining some means of sovereignty. So what Israel decided to do was the panopticon model with Gaza, control, all you need to do to control an entire prison is to control the perimeter, which is 2%. And so they would occupy Gaza from the outside, control the airspace, control all of its borders, the sea. And this is also what they were beginning to do in the West Bank with the construction of the apartheid wall, which is not constructed between Israel and the West Bank. There is no Israel per se under international law because it refuses to did de- 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 declare any boundaries. So in many cases the wall wraps around villages like Wallaje and cities like Kalkilia completely surrounded by the wall. The population though isn't isn't happy. They're pissed off. That's why they voted for Hamas in the 2006 legislative elections. In the West Bank town of Kalkilia Hamas won in the West Bank, not Gaza. But then the, all of their legislators who won through democratic means were kidnapped. Israel attempted a coup working through the Bush administration in Gaza. They failed and were defeated there. Hamas took over. And behind all of this was the Oslo Accords and the peace process, which set the stage for the separation of the West Bank and Gaza with walls from Israel and discredited the PA in the eyes of the Palestinian population as an occupation subcontractor, leading to more support for Hamas. The support for Hamas didn't necessarily come from Islamist ideology Although that's a clear part of it, their social services are a part of it, it came from outrage and anger at the occupation and the hardening of the occupation through the construction of these walls and the onset of a full-scale siege of the Gaza Strip. That's why they're there. Israel developed its own policy of occupation management, which was a doctrine— also applied in southern Lebanon and Beirut during the 2006 Second Lebanon War, which it calls the Dahia Doctrine, to attack the towns and population centers from which attacks and resistance emerges. In other words, to attack these civilians and to, humiliate, to, to demoralize them to the point where they will turn on their leadership somehow, and it's failed every time. This doctrine was expressed by Gadi Eisenkot, who was the army chief of staff at the time in 2006. He said, this is not a proposal, this is an active plan for attacking civilians. At the time, Israel had a demographer named Arnon Sofer, who was an academic who would consult for the government on how it could use this doctrine of disproportionate force to ensure a Jewish demographic majority indefinitely. Because that is the essence of Zionism, maintaining a Jewish demographic majority through violent engineering. And he said that because of the siege of Gaza, Arnon Sofer said this, the pressure at the border will become enormous and we will have to kill and kill and kill all day, every day in order to survive. And so that was really the essence of their plan. As Dove Weisglass, a consultant and legal advisor to the government of Ehud Olmert, who oversaw Operation Cast Lead, presented through a committee complex mathematical formulas used to determine the amount of calories each resident of Gaza would be entitled to on a weekly basis. This was another aspect of the siege, to put them on a diet so that they won't starve. So this is the backdrop for October 6th. I'm not talking about October 7th yet. We're talking about October 6th. On October 6th, 2023, the Gaza Strip was under siege under these very conditions that I described, and they had been under siege for 15 years, and an entire generation or two generations had grown up without ever leaving that small strip of land. They'd grown up knowing the loss of family members to missile strikes, knowing the loss of their schoolmates. With a totally different mentality... Than previous generations that had also suffered under apartheid. Gaza was under siege on October 6th. Gaza was also ignored. Do you all remember thinking about Gaza on October 6th? Because I wasn't thinking about it. I was thinking about the Ukraine proxy war. I was thinking about U.S. troops occupying the Canoco oil fields in northeast Syria. I was thinking about the U.S. starvation siege of Cuba. So I was surprised by October 7th. You know who else was surprised? the National Security Council director for Joe Biden, Jake Sullivan, who declared at the Aspen Security Conference that the Middle East, and he was boasting, the Middle East had never been quieter than under the Biden administration. Everything was fine, and Iran was being put in its place, and there was no armed resistance coming from Gaza. Everything was fine because the Abraham Accords that Jared Kushner and his crew in, implemented We're going forward. Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates were going to normalize and make peace with Israel. It was going to be great. A peace that would consign Palestinians to the dustbin of history forever. On October 6th, Gaza was desperate. Gaza was ignored. Gaza was isolated. It had no diplomatic channels, even though it had a de facto government. And actually, In July of this year, there had been protests up and down the Gaza Strip over the dire economic conditions, people demanding some kind of dignity from a government that had no capacity to give it to them because that government was operating under siege. So the volcano was going to explode one way or another. And you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Palestinian hostages in Israeli prisons, including people who are connected to families in Gaza, including children. They're not charged with anything. Many of them had just thrown stones. Many of them had just been picked up in their beds. You know, teenage boys, they were in prison, female prisoners, people in administrative detention, hundreds of them who hadn't been charged. This is a major issue in the Gaza Strip. This is a major issue for the prime minister of the Gaza Strip, whose name is Yahya Senwar, who was himself a prisoner for much of his life. Uh, He had been in prison for killing Palestinian collaborators who had gotten Palestinians killed in the Gaza Strip working with Israeli intelligence. He was a young militant, and in prison he learned Hebrew. Uh, He followed studiously the culture and news and politics of Israel, got to know his jailers very well. And his brother was involved in the taking of Gilad Shalit, the Israeli soldier who is a tank gunner, enforcing the siege of Gaza in 2006. His v- brother was involved in taking Shalit back to Gaza, which elevated Yahya Senwar in the eyes of Israeli intelligence. And he began negotiating directly with Israeli intelligence for the release of Shalit from within prison. And in 2011, he negotiated his own release along with. 1,026 other Palestinian captives of Israel, Palestinian political prisoners, for one Israeli soldier. So, this became the strategic rationale for October 7th to put Palestine back at the center of history, to remove it from the icebox of normalization, to release Palestinian political prisoners, who Sinwar is committed to, which is, is such a deep emotional issue in Palestinian society. And to start ending the siege, this, this interminable siege for which there was no negotiating channel, to establish some channel for negotiating, an end to the siege. So October 7th was inevitable. And October 7th began with attacks directed by Hamas's Nukba unit, which is an elite commando unit to the extent that they have an elite commando unit in an army with homemade weapons. On Israeli military bases, they also managed to get 10 commandos, or militants, into a base of Israel's elite, Unit 8200, its cyber warfare division, and nearly got out with very sensitive intelligence, computers. They penetrated far more deeply into Israel's security apparatus than most people even realize. They killed many soldiers at least three, let's say at least 350 soldiers who were active duty enforcing the siege of Gaza were killed in a matter of hours. They were exposed as a kind of uh, paper tiger who were not used to close quarters combat and who were more accustomed to humiliating and beating farmers and small children in the West Bank or defending settlers as they were at the time on October 7th, a large part of the Israeli Reserve Force was up in the northern West Bank near Huara defending fanatical settlers. Much of Israel's Gaza division was wiped out by a modestly armed, modestly equipped, moderately trained guerrilla army that mostly entered Israeli territory through a multi-billion dollar fence on cheap Chinese motorbikes. So this was not just a shattering of Israel's psychological security blanket. It was a political scandal of unprecedented proportions for Israel. Israel's military intelligence apparatus, which is vaunted, which has this aura within military and intelligence circles in the United States, was exposed. And its spy tech was also exposed. The spy tech that it markets around the world, that's such a big part of Israel's economy, was revealed as basically worthless. Hamas's counterintelligence, outmaneuvered Israel's intelligence Palestine was placed back at the center of history and normalization if you watched uh, anything that happened at the Doha forum in Qatar normalization between the Gulf monarchies and Israel was taken off the table diplomatic channels to Gaza were opened especially over the issue of prisoners and we have seen many prisoners come out in exchange for the some 200 Israeli hostages including some active-duty soldiers, which were taken on October 7th. And possibly most significantly, and this is a fact that I think isn't well-recognized, even by many people who follow this closely, Israel's borders were at least temporarily changed on October 7th, for the first time since 1973. There's no one in the south. Southern Israel is now a closed military zone, and you need special permission to go there. You basically need to be in a tank or part of the military. The population of northern Israel, near southern Lebanon where Hezbollah operates, which is waging some very intense skirmishes with the Israeli military right now. They are not there, it's totally depopulated. And is the Israeli military leadership believes that they will not be able to restore their de facto borders until they totally destroy any iteration of resistance from the Gaza Strip and southern Lebanon, which is one reason why their war has become so genocidal. Here's another reason, and it's psychological. Israel needed to introduce its own narrative of October 7th in order to mobilize its population and to propagandize our population into supporting what they were about to do, which was genocide. So they introduced these kinds of slogans, the worst killing of Jews since the Holocaust, to uh, remove the political context for the, that I just outlined of the October 7th attacks. The worst killing, of, as if they were just killed just because they were Jews. Beheaded babies, Hamas is ISIS, A woman whose fetus was cut from her womb, an entire family tied together and mutilated and then burned alive while the Hamas militants ate lunch in the next room. This wasn't a story that was actually repeated on October 31st in Senate testimony by none other than Secretary of State Tony Blinken. And Joe Biden, in uh, his recent Hanukkah uh, ceremony at the White House, or what I call the Dementiasburg Address, repeated the lie of beheaded babies again for the third time after the White House actually retracted it on his behalf and warned him not to do it. He just can't stop doing it. It shows the impact and the effectiveness of Israel's propaganda campaign after October 7th, and as we've been explaining at the Gray Zone and a few other independent outlets have been doing, it's all false. Not all false, okay? Let me be clear that Hamas did, it's clear they did kill civilians on October 7th. There's not any denying that. Uh, But the difference between the reality of what they did and the propaganda that Israel is putting forward is extremely significant. And the Israeli propaganda officials and their different cutouts in the U.S. made a determination that they could not just act on the reality alone and that they needed to concoct dramatic stories in order to win international support and maintain the consensus in Israel. And they turned to a very shady organization called Zaka, which was in these southern kibbutz uh, communities on October 11th, four days after the military had cleared the communities. And they began speaking to international media. They're kind of like a rescue organization, but they don't have coronary credentials. They're not actually rescuers. Um, They're not real paramedics. What they are, are orthodox Jewish quote-unquote volunteers who often show up in the streets of Tel Aviv or Jerusalem on motorbikes uh, wearing their little safety vests when there's an accident. And they make sure that the victims get a proper Jewish burial and that their body parts are disposed of properly. So they were sent in droves to these communities where people had been killed to collect the body parts, and then they went straight to international media with elaborate stories, mostly cooked up by one man, Yossi Landau, who's their so-called southern commander, who, quote-unquote, confirmed the beheaded baby story, spread the mutilated family lie, cooked up the fetus ripped cut from a mother, and none of it could be confirmed, and he constantly talked about babies being killed, babies being killed. Here's how you know that's a lie, just quickly. Only one baby was killed on October 7th. Her name was Mila Cohen. It's extremely tragic and messed up. Zaka is also at the center of the rape allegations that are now being pushed as a major international propaganda campaign by um, the Israeli government. I'll talk about those in a second, which is extremely ironic because Zaka's founder and longtime CEO, uh, Yehuda Meshi Zahav, died last year after attempting suicide in 2021 when he received the Israel Prize from the current defense minister, Yoav Galant, and then days later, Israeli media was flooded with credible stories of his serial rape of teenagers and children of both sexes along with long-standing stories of Zaka's corruption. Because for Zaka, Zaka, this is a fundraising opportunity. And they are raking in tens of millions of dollars from the Jewish diaspora by spinning out these elaborate stories and putting themselves at the center of this drama, of this genocidal passion play. And so is their chief competitor, United Hatzalah, another Orthodox Jewish so-called rescue organization, which is now fundraising on its website for $50 million off October 7th. United Hatzalah's director, Eli Beer, appeared at a fundraiser in Las Vegas. I mean, how, how much more obvious can you get? You show up in Las Vegas at Sheldon Adelson's casino at the Republican Jewish Coalition's annual fundraiser. He says that he, his organization, found a baby, a Jewish baby that had been baked in an oven by Hamas, conjuring up memories of the Holocaust deliberately. There was, of course, no evidence of this. It was a complete lie designed to gin up scandal and drama and to outcompete Zaka and get money. They were at a literal fundraising event in Las Vegas. I've looked into it very closely. It's something that could happen in a conflict, possibly, and yet we receive no direct testimony, not one. The New York Times, when it reported on it, stated that Israel has been reluctant to provide direct testimonies. Uh, Haaretz had a piece, testimony after testimony demonstrates uh, um, clear evidence of mass Hamas rape on October 7th, and then you read into the piece and they say there's no direct testimony. The piece in Haaretz was an interview with the Israeli Army legal former legal advisor, Kohav Eliakam Levy, who's the head of this civil commission on Hamas rape. Uh, And she's basically the one leading this propaganda campaign, getting the so-called pictures out and the testimonies out to different organizations and media. And one of the most influential reports, if you can even call it that, that's been disseminated, that's had an influence on liberals and progressives, is by Physicians for Human Rights Israel. It's an Israeli group. And... You know, you read this report, it also contains no direct testimony. It was completely engineered by Elia Kam Levy. And their, one of their main exhibits is a photo that they refer to but don't show, which they say shows a woman stripped, to, stripped from the waist down, dead, on the field at the Nova Electronic Music Festival, where over 200, maybe some 250 civilians or non combatants were killed in southern Israel on October 7th. And I found this photo's source uh, because it was being distributed first by the Israeli Foreign Ministry and on various websites they've set up. This photo is really central to their evidence. And I found it sourced as early as March 2022. It appears to show dead Kurdistani female fighters who were killed by, I think, some of the Syrian Turkish-backed forces that were also backed by the CIA they're not Israeli. This is not October 7th. The picture's totally fake. It doesn't show what they claim that it does. And so when Kohav Eliakam Levy from this October 7th Hamas Rape Commission spoke at Harvard, I clipped out the part where she refers to this photo, and I tweeted that it refers to female Kurdistani fighters, probably from 2022, definitely before 2023. And she responded to me, wow, why would, why, would, why would you even do that? Like, just ignore it because I nailed you. She responded to me and she says, thank you for all the publicity. Thank you for this. And, you know, now I see that I'm having an impact. Kind of like showing off to her base that someone, you know, an anti-Semitic, self-hating Jew was okay. criticizing her. And she said, I knew that I, I would be targeted, but I never thought that it would be like this. At no point in her tweet did she deny that I was Right. She acknowledged that I was right. She acknowledged that it was fake, tacitly, and then she blocked me. That shows you the essence of this whole commission, what it's about, what their objectives are. Their objectives are just to get publicity. They're not interested in the facts. They're interested in just shocking people into complying or stepping back while they commit genocide.
1: You're listening to Max Blumenthal. October seventh was inevitable. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, call us at one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. Again, that's one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven, or go online our website alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org.
0: Another key figure in this is someone named Yoni Sadon, a mysterious figure who's never been found, but was quoted in the Sunday Times UK, their big feature on Hamas rape, who said that, he, and he waited 50 days to say this, that he witnessed 10 Hamas militants simultaneously. And I'm sorry to anyone you know who's experienced sexual assault, but this is Israel cheapening sexual assault. This is what this is about, in order to massacre women and children. He witnessed 10 militants simultaneously gang raping a woman at the electronic music festival in the chaos while Apache helicopters were operating overhead, while security there was shooting, exchanging fire with Hamas militants. They had time to stop and do that. And he said that she had the face of an angel. Where is this coming from and who is Yoni Sadon? Many investigators from human rights groups have tried to track this figure down. And Yoni Sadon came out, the one Yoni Sadon on Twitter, and declared, I am not that guy. Can these um, feminist investigators stop writing me because I'm getting like 20 messages a day? No one can find him. The BBC interviewed as a key witness on this, someone named May Golan, who is Israel's Minister of Women's Empowerment, who is providing evidence to the BBC for their documentary report. And she said that breasts were rolling on the ground and genitals were rolling on the ground on October 7th. Of course, she didn't witness this, and so they asked her for anyone who might have actually experienced these sorts of hideous attacks, and she said, well, they're all dead or they're in a mental institution, and we can't let you talk to the people in the mental institution. That's literally what she said. Okay, I could be proved wrong, and it would be you know, humiliating to me after coming out like this but it's been weeks and weeks since we've started criticizing this so-called inquiry, which was reported on the front page of the Washington Post. When We have the reality on the ground in Gaza of women being massacred. And yet no one's disproven anything I've said or anyone who's criticized it has said. And they can't, provide, they can't bring us the direct testimonies yet. What it is, all this atrocity propaganda from the Israelis, think back to the first Gulf War. In 1990, the Kuwaiti ambassador paid 16 public relations firms to get his nephew, Niara, trained to deliver testimony to U.S. Congress about witnessing Saddam Hussein's troops storm into a hospital in Kuwait City and remove children from their incubators and leave them there to die. And it all turned out to be fake but this was the rationale stated explicitly by George H.W. Bush for going in and attacking Saddam Hussein's army and removing them from Kuwait and setting the stage for the next Gulf War, Iraq War II, which we saw created ISIS, left a million people dead. So it was fake. The Rantisi Pediatric Hospital, which came under attack by Israeli forces in the northern Gaza Strip, the only pediatric oncology ward, was cleared of its doctors. The Israeli soldiers left five babies ripped from their incubators in the hospital with no fuel on their beds to starve and die, and their rotting corpses were found there a week later. Babies were actually literally ripped from their incubators in the Gaza Strip, and it's like pulling teeth to try to even get U.S. media to report on it. So we're seeing these fake allegations used to justify that that's what this is about and it points to something even darker and more scandalous if you actually examine these allegations closely you hear so much about burned bodies people burned to a crisp and you see the photos that they're distributing many of them are inside cars and the cars are like melted what did Hamas what super weapon did these Hamas guys bring in on their cheap Chinese motorbikes that could do this on such a large scale why does it look so much like the highway of death where Iraqi soldiers were incinerated by u, the u s Air Force as they left Kuwait? Compare those photos and what about all the families they keep finding and this it's it's horrible to hear about this it's actually to to do these investigations and to and to read the to read the reality of it is horrible it's very upsetting, but you keep hearing reading about Families in the kibbutzim found under the rubble of their homes as families are now in Gaza and the father on top of his children or wife trying to protect them under rubble. What happened there? Well, now the details are starting to emerge, and it points to something that is even more scandalous, the official narrative of October 7th. And I wrote up several articles about this. And I'll give you some excerpts. Tuval Escapa, who is a member of the security team at Kibbutz Beri, where over 100 people died, set up a hotline to coordinate between Kibbutz residents and the Israeli army on October 7th. And he told the Israeli newspaper Haaretz that as desperation began to set in, quote, the commanders in the field made difficult decisions, including shelling houses on their occupants in order to eliminate the so-called terrorists along with their hostages. So they decided to shell Israeli homes knowing that Israelis were in them. A separate report published in Haaretz noted the Israeli military was, quote, compelled to request an aerial strike against its own military facility inside the Erez crossing, this giant hangar that you pass through to go in and out of Gaza, where the civilian coordination of the siege is located, in order to, quote, repulse the terrorists who had seized control. An Israeli woman who's one of the few survivors from Kibbutz Berry who witnessed these hostage hostage standoffs confirmed in an interview with Israel Radio that the military undoubtedly killed many Israeli non-combatants during gun battles with Hamas on October 7th. They eliminated everyone, she said, including the hostages. She and another woman who was the lone survivor of a hostage standoff in Kibbutz Berry, as I reported, revealed that an Israeli tank killed 12 Israeli non combatant civilians, in one home, which was the site of a hostage standoff. Knowing that they were there, Yasmin Porat had actually gone across the street and told those special forces that there are 12 Israelis in there. They included her partner, as well as Lael Hetzroni, a 12-year-old girl, and her twin brother, Lyle Hitzroni has become kind of an Israeli poster child for its October 7th propaganda. The former prime minister, Naftali Bennett, for example, has presented her as evidence of Hamas brutality. But now it is confirmed that the Israeli military killed her, along with her caretaker, her twin brother, and everyone else there. Take a look at the houses in Kibbutz Berry. What do they look like? They look a lot like the houses I saw on the Gaza Strip that had been destroyed by tank shells completely roasted, reduced to their foundation, their roofs had been collapsed in, and entire families are being found in home after home after home. How could Hamas, with Kalashnikovs and, at best, RPGs and grenades, have exacted so much destruction, especially under the pressure of being in firefights with Israeli special forces? This was what Colonel Nolf Erez of the Israeli military called Mass Hannibal, He said, and I quote, they didn't explode houses without permission. The Hannibal Directive was apparently applied. And it was applied not just in the kibbutzim, it was applied against cars that were going in and out of Gaza, in and around the Nova Electronic Music Festival, a site of mass death on October 7th. This has been disclosed also by... Israeli former abductees who who were uh, freed from the Gaza Strip during a war cabinet meeting with Benjamin Netanyahu, who who said, you shot at me with a helicopter on my way into the Gaza Strip, and then you bombed us and killed uh, other hostages in the Gaza Strip with your warplanes, and our biggest fear was that you would kill us and then blame Hamas. Those are almost direct quotes from the war cabinet meeting, which have been publicized in Israeli media, but not by our own media. So I referred to the Hannibal Directive. Do you all know what the Hannibal Directive is? I see some thumbs up and some nodding. Well, I got to go to those who don't know. It was named for the Carthaginian general who took poison, killed himself, rather than be captured by the enemy. So that should tell you something about what it is. It used to be a secret Israeli military directive that was put in place after the Jibril prisoner exchange. Um, I think that was in 1986 for Ahmed Jibril. And... uh, something something like 3,000 Palestinian militants were freed in exchange for a handful of Israeli soldiers. Very politically painful, uh, devastating for any Israeli leader who has to enact such a prisoner exchange. It was exposed in 2014 on Black Friday, August 1st, 2014, when an Israeli colonel named Hadar Golden was captured by Hamas militants in the southern city of Rafah. It's called Black Friday because the Israeli military carried out a massacre in order to not just eliminate those militants and kill 100 people in Rafa. I was there immediately afterwards. I saw just um, shells of US-made weapons all over the ground, destroyed homes, but also to kill Hadar Golden, the Israeli soldier, because they didn't want to do another Gilad Shalit, massive prisoner swap. So this was mass Hannibal. Kill Israelis so they don't go into Gaza So we don't have to do some gigantic prisoner exchange and then start negotiating for an end of the siege and look at where they are now It's politically destabilizing for them to have over 200 captives inside the Gaza Strip I was called a conspiracist and a master manipulator in two separate articles by Haaretz for quoting their own reporting and bringing these facts forward in the gray zone to English-speaking audiences alongside other independent outlets like Electronic Intifada and Mondeway. Today, Haaretz published an article declaring that the issue of the Hannibal Directive on October 7th is something, quote, we need to talk about. Thank you. I'll accept your apology another time. I just want to get the truth out. And I want Israelis to see how they're being, being manipulated. The atrocity propaganda is believed by nearly all Israelis. It's what's driving the consensus for this assault, Operation Iron Swords, whose objective is not the elimination of Hamas, which is actually impossible because they are politically and ideologically integrated into the population. They are the population. I don't mean they're human shields. They have a mass constituent base, like every anti-colonial resistance movement ever has. The goal is the elimination of Gaza as a Palestinian entity capable of resisting occupation. So, this atrocity propaganda fell on very fertile soil in a hyper propagandized society which has full military conscription for all men and women of the age of 18 and above. And it has fueled a genocidal discourse in which the prime minister has referred to the Palestinians of Gaza as Amalek, who are the tribe that attacked the Hebrews as they fled Egypt in the book of Deuteronomy and were slain by God. God killed Amalek. He's referred to the Palestinians as the children of darkness and Jewish Israelis as the children of light. Likud, member of Knesset Ariel Kalner has called for Nakba 2.0. There are no uninvolved civilians, said Amihai Eliyahu, who's the Israeli minister of housing who's proposed dropping a nuclear weapon on Gaza. Human animals is how Yoav Gallant, the Israeli defense minister, referred to the population of Gaza as he called for cutting off fuel, water, and electricity. And others have called for turning Gaza into a giant stadium parking lot. 1.8% of Israelis, according to a Tel Aviv University poll, believe Israel has used too much explosives on Gaza. And over 50% believe Israel has not used enough where it has dropped the equivalent of over two nuclear bombs, where most civilians who have been killed have been killed by missiles, and not just any missiles, but unguided missiles, 500, 200-pound dumb bombs supplied by General Dynamics and Raytheon, and where um, AI weapons are being used to carry out a goal spelled out by Netanyahu's special advisor, Ron Dermer, former ambassador to the U.S., the thinning of the population of Gaza. This was the goal that explicitly was spelled out by by Dermer, who's actually leading a task force to advance that goal. So now we know, unsurprisingly to those of us who followed this for years, that private family homes have been explicitly authorized as targets, as hundreds of families are being wiped from the civil registry, and the Israeli startup nation has introduced the world to a new innovation. Wounded child without family. Wounded children turning up as the lone survivor of their entire family in Gaza hospitals is a new Israeli innovation. Nothing happens by accident, said a Israeli military intelligence official. When a three-year-old girl is killed in a home in Gaza, it's because someone in the army decided it wasn't a big deal for her to be killed. That it was a price worth paying in order to hit another target we are not hamas these are not random rockets everything is intentional we know exactly how much collateral damage there is in every home this is one of the five intelligence sources who spoke to 972 magazine which is a critical israeli publication about how israel is generating its targets in the gaza strip it's generating them through a system called the gospel which is an artificial intelligence system that according to this report and these sources generates targets in Gaza faster than they can be hit. In the majority of cases, another source from the Israeli intelligence apparatus added, military activities not conducted from the homes that it targets. I remember thinking that it was like if Palestinian militants would bomb all the private residences of our families when Israeli soldiers go to sleep at home on the weekend, said the source. Um, So who's the human shield? They're targeting Gaza civilians in their homes while they sleep. They're targeting Gaza's hospitals. 100 Israeli physicians have signed a public letter, including pediatricians, authorizing and supporting the Israeli military's assault on hospitals in the Gaza Strip, particularly Shifa Hospital, the main center of medical care In the entire Gaza Strip, which I've visited several times, which has now been emptied. Kamal Hawash Hospital was emptied in the northern Gaza Strip. Everyone inside the hospital, everyone sheltering there was sent marching, including premature babies. They were just sent out. Including people in the intensive care unit. Including over 60 badly wounded people sent out into the streets where homes are destroyed. With the support of Israeli doctors. Israel is killing the educated class, one by one, with targeted assassinations. The family of one of the most renowned journalists in the Gaza Strip, Wael Dadu of Al Jazeera, was assassinated at home, his son and daughter, who both hoped to be journalists, his wife, in a targeted assassination, and an Israeli journalist, one on Israel's Channel 2, the following day, and said, yeah, we didn't like his reporting. Social media influencers that we might have been followed have been killed in targeted strikes. Yafa Haider Abu Baraka is one. And then we have my friend, Dr. Rifat El Arir, who's an exceptional individual who was killed in a targeted strike. And uh, at my last talk on Gaza back in 2015 in Chicago, I spoke about Rifat. He's a poet. Many of you know his poetry now. His poetry is impressive, and he's writing in English. He's not even writing in his native tongue, and it really captures the moment. He was a teacher at Islamic University of English literature, and his um, classes are exceptional. He's one of the more popular academics in Gaza, just among students. This is a very dangerous moment for the U.S. empire, and I believe Rifat al-Arir's trip For Gaza Writes Back, which was published by my friend Helena Cobbin is a great collection of Palestinian writing, I believe that was a dangerous moment as well for U.S. empire and for Israel's little extension of U.S. empire because he had previously held anti-Semitic views in his own words, and why wouldn't he, honestly? Why wouldn't anyone in Gaza, if you've never left, and the only experience you have with Jews is people piloting drones over your house to kill your family, rampaging through your neighborhoods, humiliating your people, and they place the Star of David on their weapons. And he said, this is how they want me to think, and I'm not going to think this way anymore, because he started to meet anti-Zionist Jews and to see the, the humanity of our community here in the United States. So I met him at dinner in Berkeley with other anti-Zionist Jews like Nora Barrows Friedman of Electronic Intifada. And he went back to Gaza and began teaching his students The Merchant of Venice, Shakespeare's play, about uh, a Jew named Shylock who was in many ways oppressed. He's considered sort of an anti-Semitic stereotype, but he was actually oppressed, ghettoized, humiliated. And when his students finished reading The Merchant of Venice, Rifat asked them which character did they identify with more? Othello, the Venetian general of Arab origin, or Shylock the Jew? And he described their response as the most emotional moment of what was then his six year teaching career. One by one, his students declared an almost visceral identification with Shylock. And in uh, one of his students' final papers, the student reworked Shylock's famous cri de coeur, into an appeal to the conscience of her own oppressors in the United States and Israel. Hath not a Palestinian eyes, hath not a Palestinian hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions, fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian or Jew is? If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge?" fought, taught Hebrew literature, not because he had any affinity for Israel, but because it also contained literary beauty. And so he was the first academic at Islamic University, which was founded by Hamas, to teach Hebrew literature. He saw this all as a form of resistance. And he saw anti-Zionist Jews who he would bring to his class if they were in the Gaza Strip as comrades in resisting Zionism. And he expressed himself on Twitter in the same way we all do as a funny troll because how can you survive psychologically under this propaganda assault if you're not hitting back at the lies and the insanity spiraling out of the Israeli propaganda channels. So when this fake story from a Las Vegas Adelson fundraiser spun out about a baby burned in an oven, alive, came out, we all started kind of mocking it because it it, it offends our sensibilities. It cheapens the Holocaust just as they cheapen sexual assault. And Rifat responded to a tweet by saying, was the baby, you know, baked with, Baking powder or oil, or something like that. There was no baby baked in an oven, so you're not mocking a baby burned in an oven, okay? That's not how Barry Weiss, the neoconservative, well-heeled pundit who now has just founded a uh, Likudnik diploma mill in Austin, that's not how she received it. She did a long thread on Twitter about how her former employer at the New York Times was anti-Semitic, and as Exhibit A, she pointed to Rifat's tweet, which she said was Mocking a baby burned in an oven and not mocking propaganda. So then, Rifat, who is in northern Gaza, who chose to stay in northern Gaza, defying Israeli orders to move south, and said, I will stay on my land even if it means being in direct harm's way, as if people in the south aren't in harm's way. He, his direct messages, his inbox began filling up with threats, not only by pro Israel fanatics but by active duty Israeli soldiers who pledged to kill them when they arrived to his area of northern Gaza. Not just threats, but detailed threats to carry out sexual assault on his family members. Disgusting, vivid visions of torture. And it wasn't just Barry Weiss. A so-called comedian on one of the most popular programs in Israel called Eretz Nehederet, which is their version of Saturday Night Live, I would call it like Saturday Night Dead because they think genocide is funny. They began taking aim at Rifat. One poet, one author who threatened them so much with his words in the Gaza Strip was targeted on one of Israel's most popular programs and targeted by one of the most prominent neocon pundits in the U.S. and Israeli military soldiers and reservists were vowing to kill him. Because they couldn't take a joke. Which is so un-Jewish to me. I mean, Zionists have really done a great job of defying the stereotype of superior Jewish humor and intelligence, haven't they? And so, December 6th, I sent Rifat a message. We had been having exchanges. And I said, I hope you're hanging in there. Because the tanks were closing in on his area of Shijia. And I hadn't heard from him in three days. And I never heard back he had been in a United Nations shelter, sheltering with his family. He received a phone call telling him they were going to kill him. And he said, if they're going to kill me here, they're going to kill all these people around me and all these other families. And so he retired to his sister's apartment with his nuclear family and was killed in a targeted strike along with his family. And he's, as we speak, or as we sit here, he and his family are still under the rubble Unreachable. He was killed for his words because his words were so threatening. But I want to close, I guess, with Rifat's some of his last words to the public. Uh, one of his final interviews, as the tanks and snipers were closing in, his voice was trembling and you could hear the bombs thundering in the distance. He was speaking to Electronic Intifada, to those who we met when I first met him, we were there at the dinner table at this nice restaurant in Berkeley. Uh, and he was forced to envision his own death. And he vowed to resist to the end with the only instrument at his disposal. He said, I'm an academic. Probably the toughest thing I have at home is an Expo marker. But if the Israelis invade, if the paratroopers charge at us going from door to door to massacre us, I'm going to use that marker to throw it at the Israeli soldiers, even if that's the last thing that I do. We're not soldiers, but we have an obligation to pick up where he left off with what we can. We have to pick up the marker. Pick up the marker and throw your marker at the architects of this genocide for the rest of your lives. Thank you.
1: You were just listening to Max Blumenthal. October 7th was inevitable. He spoke at the Community Church of Boston in mid December. Max Blumenthal is an award winning journalist and editor in chief of the Grey Zone. This program is produced by Alternative Radio, based in Boulder, Colorado. We're an independent progressive nonprofit in our 38th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, Chris Hedges, Phyllis Bennis, and Norman Finkelstein. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. For copies of today's program, Max Blumenthal, October 7th Was Inevitable, and for Noam Chomsky's classic book on the Middle East, Pirates and Emperors, call us at one 800 That's one 800 Or you can go online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's Alternative Radio dot o-r-g. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.